Everybody and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers for August 2022, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview was with Arthur Dervedevin, co-author of a new book called The Library, A Fragile History. Dervedevin and co-author and fellow historian Andrew Pedigree have written a fascinating exploration of the history of libraries and the people who built them from the ancient world to the digital age. They're famed across the known world. They're jealously guarded by private collectors. They've been built up over centuries. They've been destroyed in a single day, ornamented with gold leaf and frescoes, or filled with beanbags and children's drawings. The history of the library is rich and varied and stuffed full of incident in the library, historians Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Dervedevin introduce us to the antiquarians and philanthropists who shaped the world's great collections. They also trace the rise and fall of literary tastes and reveal the high crimes and misdemeanors committed in pursuit of rare manuscripts. In doing so, they reveal that while collections themselves are fragile, often falling into ruin within a few decades, the idea of the library has been remarkably resilient as each generation makes and remakes the institution anew. I began my interview with Arthur Dervedevin by asking him how this book came together and how he came to work with fellow historian Andrew Pedigree on the library, A Fragile History. Yeah, great, great question. So, I mean, first of all, it's such a pleasure uh, being uh, co-writing a book uh, with someone because um, you just have, you have someone to bounce off on all the time. You know, someone who's really just as invested in the book as, as you are. And I think we like to think of authorship uh, as a sort of creative genius. You know, we have this image of someone needs to be sort of the tortured individual who's struggling with a book. Um, and then all of a sudden it comes forth and it's amazing. Um, you know, often uh, that's not the case. And it's a lot of fun doing it with someone. But I met, um, I mean, I, I, first of all, Andrew was my, uh, my tutor. Uh, I came to university and he became my, my supervisor. So I did my research under him. And, uh, you know, we're good friends. And um, one day, we, we'd both been working on this one particular topic on the, um, the book production and the book culture of the Dutch Golden Age in the 17th century, uh, both from different angles. And we sort of came together and decided, um, yeah, let's write, let's write this book. Let, let's give it a go. And it's, uh, we've done, done several books uh, together since. Uh, and it's, it's an immensely fun process. And the way we go about it, is we tend to, once we've come up with what we want to write about, we just go to the pub together, take a piece of paper with us, and we just sketch out, you know, what do we want the structure of the book to be? And we just, in rough, sketch out, you know, the 15, 18 chapters we want to have in the book. Once we've done that, uh, we just divide them up 50-50. Andrew takes responsibility for some. I take responsibility for others. Um, And... Um, so you go away, you write your chapters, but obviously a lot of the, crucially, a lot of the research we do together. So I may be reading things that's for Andrew's chapters and vice versa. 
but one of us takes responsibility for a chapter. We write that up, hand it over to the other one. And the, the trick is then is that the person who reads it uh, and makes changes on it, the other one has to accept all of them. You can't have any sort of room for saying, oh, yeah, it's just this sort of blind process of saying we both need to be entirely happy with what's written in. So if I want to make a change on something Andrew's done or the other way around, it's just accepted. It's accepted. And that keeps a certain harmony in, in the process, too. Hmm, that's so, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's jump into this. The, the history of the library. I, I mean, I, libraries have just literally saved my life in, 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 when I was, you know, a wayward adolescent. And they, they just pointed me in a, in a really constructive direction in terms of art, in terms of music, which I was just like total film, completely fanatic about Arthur. It, it take us back to the early days here. I always think, oh, library started with, oh, Gutenberg and, and, you know, the printing press. But no, of course, they go way, way earlier than that. How, how early? What, what is the, the first library that, that was ever created? Any idea? Well, it, it, the one thing I, I can say is that certainly the, the sort of the desire to collect information and to store knowledge is a very human one. And that's been around for as long as, as humans have been creating texts of one sort or another. So really the earliest traces we can find of libraries, collect, you know, purposely assembled collections of texts is already in the Babylonian and the Assyrian empires, you know, in the sort of second second millennia uh, before the birth of Christ. So a long, long time ago. And, and initially, I mean, these would be predominantly exactly this, you know, storehouses of information. Um, you might almost consider them archives, the places where rulers would often um, um, assemble as much information as possible. Often in this age, it would be inscribed on tablets, Later, around um, uh, around the age of the Roman Empire, it would be all on papyrus scrolls. So again, totally different medium of storage. Uh, one that was, it should be said, also incredibly fragile. Uh, papyrus is very cheap. It grows in abundance along the banks of the Nile. Um, but it also uh, deteriorates after a couple of centuries. So inherently, and this is one of the key themes of our book, is that, like you say, you know, libraries are a wonderful thing, and they've always been around. Uh, as a concept, but individual libraries do really struggle to uh, keep going after a while. You know, they many libraries rarely outlast the life um, of their original founder. So that's that's one of the key takeaways. But yeah, so in, in short, the story of the library goes back a long, long way. And I think when you, because you mentioned printing, uh, Gutenberg, and the, the one key thing that does change with Gutenberg is the fact that it changes the potential for people to have libraries themselves. Before the age of Gutenberg, libraries were largely the preserve of, uh, of royalty, of the mm. political elite, of great institutions like monasteries or churches, or places like universities. They were the sort of places that had enough institutional um, uh, funding and also crucially the space, of course, to amass and then store lots of books. But with printing, uh, invention of, of movable type, uh, the production of books becomes over time so much easier, so much cheaper, that it also drives down the cost of books. Um, and this goes hand in hand with another crucial uh, uh, media change, and that is the transition from uh, first from papyrus to parchment uh, and then to paper. Um, and paper is really also what drives the price of books down. So all of a sudden, many more people in the world, say you're a, a, you know, a, professor, you're a lawyer or a doctor or you're a merchant, 
um, all of a sudden, there's the potential for you to begin to build your own library. So we do see library accumulation and growth really accelerate from about the 15th century onward. And that's, yeah, I was just going to ask and you what that time exactly. frame for Gutenberg is around the 15th century, exactly. you say? In the middle of the 15th century of Gutenberg, from there on onwards, it does, it does grow exponentially. That's really what you see. And then from there kind of came this this concept of, of, of public libraries, things that weren't just, you know, religious or uh, in universities where there, there where anyone could go to a library and look at books and, and or check out books. That was all like after Gutenberg, correct? Um, yes. Yes and no. I mean, mm-hmm. in some ways, uh, the concept of a public library, the way we know it today, has actually had quite a short history. I mean, there have always, always been institutions that say that their library is for a public or for the public, whatever that is. But very often it has much more to do with the prestige of the library builder or founder than the actual, um, um, than the actual you know, use of books by other people. I mean, in the Roman Empire, uh, libraries would be established by emperors and by uh, great generals. But the only people who would be allowed in uh, would be their favorite writers and their friends. You know, libraries for them were as much a space of social activity as they were for people to be reading texts. Mm. And um, that does actually persist after the age of Gutenberg too. If for the same reason, uh, emperors, uh, princes, uh, even great scholars, of course, collect, um, collect libraries and sometimes say, you know, I will open this to my friends. This is not just for me. I am a generous person. I will share my books uh, with the world. And, you know, one of the surprises of our book is actually how remarkably difficult it has been for humans as a society to cater to everyone's wishes in a public library. Mm. Um, And in part, the problem with that is, of course, that bookish people uh, want uh, want exactly the books that they want. And if books are very easy to acquire, most people choose to to, uh, curate their own personal libraries. Um, rather than invest in a communal library. So the struggle for, you know, who should public libraries be for has always been um, a really uh, pertinent one throughout history. And then how about this whole issue? I mean, gosh, we even see it now with, you know, books being banned, you know, in schools here uh, in the U.S. And and, uh, and this is a, a sad state of affairs in history, too, where you just read and this is really painful about, you know, books being thrown out, being destroyed, being burned, libraries pillaged as, you know, rulers change and religions change and things like that. So, some, some of this stuff is pretty awful to, to read about. Fascinating, well, I mean, but awful. <laughs> it's, it, you're absolutely right. It's awful, but it's also a, a total recurring theme in the history of libraries. I mean, mm. they say often, you know, if, if a library reflects the values of society, then that, first of all, means it can be a, that means it's a legitimate target for those who wish to overthrow that society or attack it for whatever reason. So it's always, a, it's a cultural target in that sense. Um, but also, you know, libraries, um, we always think that in, in every age that we have the best books available and that our libraries are actually better than what came before, that they should be stocked with our values and our books. So, in fact, the very concept of modernity is as much a threat to libraries as anything else. And that's often, of course, what you also see with these uh, the battles for, you know, uh, for banning books, you know, which books are appropriate for, for people to be using. Well, in the 16th century, you know, that was the great, um, the, the great conflict then was between Protestant and Catholic books. 
Right. Um, should they be accessible? If you're in a Catholic country, you don't want any Protestant books. And if you're in a Protestant country, the only libraries with Catholic books would be scholarly ones, and they would be kept under, under lock and key. And we see this too. I mean, um, in Nazi Germany in the, uh, in the 1930s, uh, Germany, uh, Hitler created many, many public libraries. He really believed in the concept of if we stock our libraries with the right sort of literature, we will create a more um, Nazified proper uh, population. Um, and of course, at the same time, uh, the Nazis were burning and destroying millions of books. And when it, then, of course, when the uh, when the Nazis were defeated and the uh, the Americans showed up to Germany, often they found that librarians in Germany had simply put the the bad books, uh, the, the books that the Nazis didn't like, simply in the cellar. And they had already before the Americans showed up in town, they'd already changed the stock around. So now the Nazi books were in the cellar, and the, the good books were now back on the shelves again. And in fact, it was this was a real issue for for the Allies uh, after when they. Uh, uh, at the end of the Second World War, because they wanted to denazify German society. But what do you do with all these books? Um, and actually, there was, first of all, they simply wanted to burn them, or they wanted to pulp them. And this caused such outrage back, back home that they, didn't, that they didn't put up with it. But ultimately, most of these books were quietly just quietly pulped and, 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 and thrown away, because um, what use did they serve now? Very little. What are some of the greatest libraries around the world? What are some of the oldest ones that 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 still exists, Arthur? And what is the what library is this on the cover of your book? That is quite a spectacular photograph. It is quite a spectacular library. Well, that is that is the library of Trinity College in Dublin. Mm. Uh, really, one of the finest uh, uh, university libraries uh, you, you can find in the world, and that's their famous uh, uh, their famous long room. Which, if you ever go to Dublin, any of your listeners go to Dublin, it's certainly worth uh, uh, seeing. Um, you can you can wander around, so that that's definitely worth doing. I mean, there's there's lots of libraries that are, that are still around that have a incredibly uh, long history. I mean, the, the libraries of the Roman Empire of the of the uh, of antiquity are all gone, but the Library of the Vatican, for example, can uh, trace its roots back really to before the before the year one thousand. In certain of its holdings, there's still some uh, monastic libraries out there that date back to the to the early uh, medieval age as well. Um, I mean, but then again, some of the greatest libraries in the world uh, are actually quite uh, young. I mean, if you think of the Library of Congress in Washington D.C., really only dates from the 19th century, of course, and that's now one of the absolutely the largest libraries uh, in the world. I just uh, did an interview recently with a retiring uh, director of our Ann Arbor District Library, and she's just talked about how in, in her 2022 20, years, I mean, that the changes in the library are have, have been dramatic. But she said, you know, we're still important. We're still here. And people, there's still a lot of people who want to check out books and need books. But there's a, they, they have changed so much. I mean, you can check out musical instruments now at our Ann Arbor District Library. They do uh, events all the time with authors. I do a monthly podcast for the Ann Arbor District Library. So change has been constant like it like it always is, but it just seems like it's really been accelerated uh, 
over the last few years. And I, I hear, you know, some naysayers going, why do we need libraries anymore? We can just see everything online. And I just think that's a really stupid opinion that too, too many people have. I, I want to hear your thoughts about that, Arthur. Um, I mean, and, libraries, libraries have always been changing. And, and in many ways, you know, the library is definitely in an, in an era of, of dynamic change now again. Some might say in an age of crisis, but I think mm. from our research, it, it tends to be different depending on where you look at. In the United Kingdom, for example, it's, it's really branch libraries. The smaller branches of public library system are not doing very well just because they can't keep up with the, the desires of a very diverse base of users who do indeed have so many more options now to access particular texts. Well, at the same time, because libraries are now being used for so many other services, they have in effect become a branch of the social services. So that also means that, you know, uh, if you take away attention away from the books, over time, um, there's less money for books. And if there's less money for books, fewer people check out books. You know, you can end up in this yeah. sort of vicious cycle. It's the same way with, you know, if, if the council decides to limit opening hours, the fewer people use it. And at the next round of budget uh, planning meetings, they say, look, fewer people are using the library. So that's something, to, obviously, to watch out for. But ultimately, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Um, I mean, libraries have always been changing. Libraries have also always been uh, places where people do different things. Um, in some ways, we're going back to a much older model. Um, in Certainly in sort of 15th century Italy, libraries were often great social spaces where people would be, you know, they, they'd read poetry together. Uh, they, would have, uh, they would have meetings. You would receive guests in your library. So in some ways, the fact that libraries are diversifying uh, is a good thing. The key thing is is simply that uh, there needs to be money available for all these things, but also a realization that libraries cannot stock everything. You know, they it, they can't be there for literally everyone in society. I think that is a that 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 is a difficult but important thing to remember. And the final thing to remember is certainly that this sort of sense of if we just turn to digital resources, everything will be fine. I would certainly caution against that um, because. Um, First of all, we're not yet really sure where digital is going in terms of its long-term sustainability, both from a perspective of just general electricity usage, also from the sense that um, the damage it's doing to our eyes and to our concentration. Reading a book as a physical object is so different from reading a text uh, imprinted, uh, um, available just on a digital screen. So those are, are, are pretty major factors. And I think we've seen during this whole pandemic, too, that people are turning ever more to bookshops, to print, uh, and indeed to libraries, rather than just relying on all the electronic resources that are wearing around all over the place. So I think there's, we can be optimistic about libraries, but yes, someone does need to pay for them. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for August 2022. Our interview was with Arthur Dervedevin, co-author of The Library, A Fragile History. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. <laughs> <laughs>